All right. Take your Bibles. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 14 and 15. Uh, or, yeah, 14 and 15. I'm going to read from 10 to 17 in just a moment. I am going to follow. Uh, I, I was being lobbied before the service by Dr. Stanton, who said that on Mother's Day, the preacher always pats mom on the back and says, be nice to her and all of that. And then Father's Day, the preacher always beat up on the men. And so he's lobbied that we not beat up on the men today. I was already going there, but I take your wise counsel and we'll be glad to do that. And in fact, I'll just say to the men, you can have the rest of the day off. That's the preacher gives you permission. But let's do take just a moment before we get started. If you're a father, would you stand? All the fathers. Let me just lift you up in prayer. You you don't go and be seated since half of them already sat down. But let's just pray for our dads today. Uh, My wife this morning got up and had a tough morning. This is her first Father's Day without her dad. He was 96. He passed away in the fall. And uh, she got to celebrate for the first time ever last Father's Day when we moved up here with him. We've never been able to be up here for Father's Day. So she got that last day. Um, but it, it is a, it's a special day, and we can honor our fathers in good ways. But I just want to do it by lifting you guys up in prayer today. So join with me as we pray. Father, I thank you for each of the men who stood. Thank you for how you have blessed their lives. I thank you for the grace that you've shown them through Christ Jesus, our Lord. I pray you give them a great day today and continue to help them as they lead and guide their families. And that, Father, they will continue to honor and glorify you in all they do and say. But bless them this day as our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple things I'm wearing my Father's Day present, my socks. They have dachshunds on them. My wife thought they would be cute for me to wear since we have dachshunds, so that's mine. My other Father's Day present was a lemon pie made from scratch. I love lemon pies. And it was my own pie, full size. So yesterday afternoon, while watching the golf tournament, I went in there, snuck in, because I'm supposed to save that for supper, and got me a big piece. The pie has vanished. I went to get another piece last night, and I asked my wife, where's my pie? It's my Father's Day present. She says, your A1C was 5.7 this week. You're pre-diabetic. You don't need another piece. I said, 5.7, 5.6 is normal. I'm in good shape. Well, it's gone, so I had at least one piece of Father's Day. One of you asked me a moment ago, what are you going to do after you, uh, for Father's Day today? I hope nothing. Because if we do something, i got to pay for it all. I have never understood why dads have to pay for everything on Father's Day, but that's just, I guess, the way it goes. All right, we're not going to do a Father's Day sermon today. I'm in the armor of God now, and we're going to look at three of them. And I think it's very important, especially, again, as we live in the culture we're living in, as crazy as everything may be around us. I was reading something this week, and it said this. From that time on, the morals of our forefathers have declined, not little by little as before, but they're rushing headlong like a torrent. The younger generations sank so deep into immorality and avarice, if you don't know what that means, it means extreme greed, 
that it can be justly said that they were born neither to possess property nor to leave in peace those who died. Who do you think wrote that? Sounds a little like today. The author of that is Augustine, written in the fourth century. See, life never does change. There are good days and there are tough days. There are days when culture drops. There are days when it improves. Augustine then said a little bit later, let the man who dislikes these pleasures of the way people are living today be branded as a public enemy, and should he attempt to interfere with them, let the mob be free to hound him to death, which is kind of where we live today. If you hold the values that many of us hold, you will face some difficulty because of that at work, public settings, and everything else. So in one sense, nothing's ever changed. Last week, we looked at the fact of the evil day, and I wanted to make the simple point that every one of us at one point or another in time will face an evil day. In fact, two or three of you walked up after and said, you know, I can think of two or three days in my life that were evil days. I can think of three or four in my own life of what I would call an evil day, but that happens. Well, the armor is for those days, but the armor is for every single day. In fact, as we get into this in just a moment, uh, I think the armor is the final picture of everything he's been saying. You'll see that as I get into this. I think it's a a very good picture of everything he said in the first uh, six and a half uh, verses of chapter six. It's It's a powerhouse observation of how things were using a soldier of that day. So if you'll stand with me, I'd like to read starting verses 10 through 17. We'll key on 14. And 15, but here's what it says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so you may be able to resist an evil day. And having done everything... Stand firm. In verse 14, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having you shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, take up the shield of faith in which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Father, be with us now as we look at this. Give us insight and understanding as we look at three of the pieces of armor today. Make sure we're making them applicable in our lives and all that we do and say is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The first piece of armor is truth. And we live in a day where people seem to have lost what truth is even about. You know, when Jesus was talking to Pilate, he said this, everyone who's of the truth will hear my voice. I will say this, if you've come to know what truth really is, then you will hear everything that Jesus has to say. He made that statement to Pilate. But when he made that statement, Pilate is then going to say shortly after, I find nothing wrong in this man. I find no guilt in him. But then he had him scourged, had him beaten severely, which is about how a politician would do something, think you're innocent, but still take a toll out on your life. But it wasn't long before Pilate, in the midst of all this, looks at him and he says, what is truth? You know, I wonder what it's like to be Pilate in eternity. To know that you had standing right there in front of you, truth. 
and not be able to see it? To know you were that close and yet you missed everything that was going on? When we talk about girding our loins with truth, I want to remind you today that truth is not a concept. Truth is a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. He said this, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So you hold on to that. We, what, and what does that mean? If truth is a person and we gird ourselves with truth, we just wrap around us this amazing truth of who Jesus Christ is. That's who we are as Christians. We are people who come to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of lords and King of kings. We've come to confess him as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Our whole life is centered in that. And so he's called us to gird ourselves. The word gird there just simply means clothe yourself, dress in readiness. It's in the middle voice in the Greek language. It means this is your responsibility. You cannot do this for me, and I cannot do this for you. I can encourage you. You can encourage me. But there comes a point in time you're going to say, I'm standing on this truth of who Jesus is, on the truths of what his word says. I don't care what the rest of the culture does or says or anything else. I know what it is. I hear his voice, and I'm going to walk with it. Jesus was have said earlier, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamp lit. He's talking about one of the parables at that point. But be dressed in readiness. You and I are to be ready to face whatever life may come, whatever we may have to face in life, especially if the evil day comes. The evil day, even with the armor on, I said this two or three weeks ago, you can put that armor on, but when the evil day hits, it hurts. It can hurt deeply. You're going to take quite a shot. That's just part of what life's about sometimes. I was in high school. My grandfather came to see me play football for the first time ever. My grandfather was a football fanatic. He went to every Texas OU game. Uh, and if, it was his anniversary always, but he always forgot his anniversary because he had to go to Dallas for the football game. And so that's when he would take off and go. He had season tickets to the Thomas Jefferson Yellow Jackets, who back in his day were one of the powerhouse teams in all of Texas. And so he would be there. Finally, he came to see I was the first Branson to ever put on a uniform and play the game of football. And so we're sitting there, and the game's starting. I was free safety on the kickoff, which means I'm the guy that stood by the ball, dropped my hands, and everybody took off. My job was to go five yards and watch which way the runner was going. If he came down this side, I'd move to this side. If he was going down that side, I was the one who had to stop him. He went all the way. I'd be the last man between him and the goal. But on this day, I'm going to prove to my grandfather I deserve to be out there, and I'm a good football player. And so I left my position. I sprinted down the field as fast as I could. And here came the runner about the 20-yard line. We'd kicked it all the way to the end zone. He's coming. I've got the angle on him. I've got him. I'm getting ready to deck him. I still don't know who hit me to this day. <laughs> I got hit so hard, it was brutal. I didn't know who I was. I did not know what team I played for. I got up and went to the other team's bench, Bishop Burns, and sat down. And they had to stop the game and walk me across the field. My grandfather only saw me play that one play my entire life. But I remind you something. I survived the hit. You're going to survive the hits of life when the evil day comes. But don't be shocked when it hurts, when it's difficult. I wish life, I wish we could say life is just a rose garden. Everything's a fairy tale and we have a great time all the way through, but it's not. And the way I'm going to deal with when that day does come or just living every day is I got to wrap myself in the simple truths of who Jesus is. 
When Paul writes this letter, he's praying for the people a couple times. He doesn't test. He has never yet asked you and I to pray. He will do that at the end of the letter. But he's prayed a couple times in the middle of this letter. First chapter, third chapter. And here's what he prayed. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ will do what? That he will give you a spirit of wisdom and a revelation and the knowledge of him. He wants you to have that wisdom and knowledge of what truth is all about. And that's the gift that the Father gives us. He then prays us, I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened so you may know what the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. There's so much about this that's so powerful in our lives to be able to know. It gives us hope. And there's riches involved in these truths that are stunning. That doesn't mean you get riches now. You may or may not have riches. You know, my kids the other day said, what do you want for Father's Day? I said, won't you pay for your mom and I's uh, 70th birthday trip to Alaska here in a couple weeks? I got socks. They don't have that kind of money, so I had to pay my own trip. What do you expect? But there are riches, but it's not money. Do you know how rich you are today? The presence of God in your life, the rescuing you from the darkness and putting you in a part of his kingdom, the great promises of God's word that he'll never leave you nor forsake you no matter what you might face in life. He said in the opening of his letter, you're the most blessed person there is. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in places. He said, well, I don't feel like it. I don't care how it feels. I'm stating a fact. He said, this is truth. You're blessed. It's up to us to be able to recognize and see it. And Paul's praying, I hope they see this. It's amazing what you have done for them. And the working of strength. Every one of us. When I did that last week on the evil day, the main point I made it then was, you're going to survive that and you're going to stand. There are times you don't feel like you are, but you're going to. How do I know that? Because God gives us the strength to get through. He does not let his children fall. We may stumble. We may hit the ground, but we pop back up. Proverbs is very clear. A righteous man falls seven times. He gets up seven times. When I'm on the football field and the kid trips over a dummy during practice the other day, we're all, the coaches are, get up, get up, get up. You're going to fall in football, but you get back up. That's the key to the game. Get back up as fast as you possibly can. You and I are going to get back up no matter what happens in life. That's the truth that God has blessed us with. And when we begin to see and understand that, Paul later prays, I pray you comprehend with all the saints, the height, the depth, the breadth, and the length of the love of Christ. You and I are the most loved people in all the world. God loves us with an everlasting love, and it's real. It's not what goes on today and say, God, why have you forsaken me? He hasn't. Some days you walk through the tough days, but he's there with you. In fact, you know how close he is with you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. You have the very presence of Christ with you at every moment in your life. And Paul says, I pray that you know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. This truth of what we've been given surpasses even the love which God has for us. Solomon, when he became king, there was a real mix-up with all of that. I think it was Adonijah wanted to be king. He tried to get it. Solomon's mom moves quickly. David had promised that Solomon would be king. So he has to have a special ceremony, ordain him as king, get it all ready. But he says to his son, Walk before me, talking about God, walk before him in truth, 
with all your heart, Solomon. Walk before God in truth with all your heart and with all your soul. And young man, if you do that, you'll never lack for somebody on the throne. See, what Solomon was told by David as David was about to die, as he makes his son king, young man, gird your loins with truth and life will go well. You and I are called to do that. But here's the struggle you and I have. If you get to the end of Jeremiah, Jeremiah, the city has been destroyed. People have been taken away into exile. Those who are left in the area of Israel and, and Jerusalem at that point are who? The poor, the people who had no significance at all. They had very little left. They have survived the battles. They have not been taken away. The Babylonians do not want them. And so a bunch of them get together and they come to Jeremiah, who God left in Jerusalem through all that battle. And they said this, pray for us to the Lord your God. Not the Lord our God, but the Lord your God. Pray for us to the Lord your God. And what is for this remnant? There are a few of us left. What is the Lord going to tell us? What are we supposed to do? So Jeremiah goes away. Ten days later, God speaks to him. And he comes back and says, God says, do not go to Egypt. You stay here. You build your life. What was the reaction? You're a liar. The leader said, you're lying to us. Had Jeremiah, through all 40 years, ever lied to these people? Had not everything he prophesied come true, and yet when he tells them, don't go to Egypt? See, sometimes we have truth staring us in the face, and it's so obvious, but sometimes because of what life's done to us and the threats that are real around us, we don't see it. So the warning here is be careful. The truths of God's word are real. They're evident, but you have to get to the point, I want that in my life. You know what happened to all the people who left Israel and went to Egypt? They died. They died in the battle because the Babylonians went to Egypt and finished it off. If they'd have stayed in Jerusalem, they would have had a good life and they would have finished well. I'm here to tell you today, if you gird your loins with truth, God's going to take care of you. I think it's significant that Paul puts this truth first. Because the entire first three chapters are about the truths of God and what he's accomplished for us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So clothe yourself in that. And I remind you, it's dangerous to rush in battle without having the great truths of God as a part of our lives. In Christianity, truth comes first, then followed by actions. So my question to you is, how often do you study your Bible? How well do you know it? I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that we're not as sharp as we ought to be. I think it's part of the culture in which we live in that we don't spend the time to really reflect and think through it. When I preach at seminary in Cuba and I go, Ephesians 1.7 says, seminary students, and it's not this way in American seminaries. Seminary students in Cuba will begin quoting to me in Spanish that verse before I even get started. When I begin to say something, they're already quoting a verse to me. They've almost memorized the entire Bible. But they have the time and the effort. They don't have any money. They can't go anywhere. They can't do anything. They're so devoted to the Word of God. I think we so desperately need that today. We need these truths. They're the, I mean, the greatest joy you ought to have is comprehending and understanding all that God has done for us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now let's go to the second one. So I got truth. What do I do with it? Well, he says what? Put on, and what that verse says, what? Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Okay. Two things this could be. This can be in what we call imputed righteousness, theological term. It's just simply this. You've been clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. What he accomplished while he was on this earth and on the cross has been given to you and you have his righteousness, which is true. But it also can be practical righteousness. Faith without works is a dead faith. I have a tendency to believe it's more the practical righteousness, although I don't discount the imputed righteousness of Christ. Because anything we do is because we now have covered by his righteousness and therefore we have been forgiven of all our sins. But if I'm going to protect myself from the evil day, you know what I need to be doing? I need to be living a good life, guys. I need to be walking in obedience to what God's word says and doing it in a way that is pleasing to him. And it tells me again, middle voice, I have to do this. I clothe myself. I put this on. Isaiah is going to say, put on the righteousness like a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on your head. We'll see that helmet a little bit later on. In Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. So it's called righteousness. It's called light. But it's a protection. When Paul tells the church at Rome to put on the armor of light, he says this. Stop your crowds and your drinking. Stop your sexual promiscuity and your sensuality. Stop your strife and your jealousy that you aim at everyone. And put on Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. So when I look at this, what I'm seeing this simply is this. I have to live the life that God's called me to live to be able to have the protection of God around me. And that breastplate protects my heart. Last fall, we were playing Strawn in football at their field, and they're one of the meccas of football in Texas. And we had a good game going. We ended up winning it. But one of my linebackers, I really, kid's a great kid. He, I wish he was coming back this year, but God's called him in the ministry, so he's going to give up football. Great linebacker, loved the game, great athlete, great kid. He's coming across on the other side of the field to make the tackle, and he got hit so hard it was unbelievable. I mean, it was brutal, the hit that he took. We watched it on film later, and immediately he didn't move. He's on the ground, and I run out to him. And he can't breathe. He got hit in the chest. It scares me to death when somebody gets hit that hard in the chest because I know it can stop your heart. The other coach, though, got out there, knelt down beside him from the other team. He beat me to him. We both dropped down, and he began to say this to the young man. Young man, 27, calm down. You're okay. Calm down. You're okay. Calm down. We're going to be all right. Hang in there with me. Watch me. Keep your eyes on me. We're going to be okay. And within a little bit, suddenly the breathing starts returning back to normal. And Elam starts doing a little bit better. And we get him back up. See, I think that's what truth and godly living does. When we get hit hard by life, God's whispering in our ear because we've been had the breath knocked out of us. He's going to whisper in our ear, it's going to be okay. I'm with you. You've been walking with me. I've not left you. I'm walking with you. It's going to be all right. Your good life, God blesses and watches over and will help you through life. It doesn't mean it goes perfectly, but you live a good life. And why do we live a good life? Why do we get out there and strive to be some of these things we've studied in Ephesians? Why do we do that? Out of appreciation that we've been given the opportunity to be able to do it. I've been given the greatest gift in the world, the gift of life in Christ Jesus. 
I've been given the greatest promise in the world that one day I'll walk into his presence and I will see him again. And I can hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And what he wants me to do is live a life now that shows appreciation for that. You know, it was a slow lesson to learn as a teenager growing up that I needed to live a life that gave my parents that they'd be proud of who I was. So I would cross the lines, put my foot on the line, sometimes step across it. But I learned later as I got older and matured. You know, I want to live a life so when mom and dad look at me, they go, you're doing well, son. And I now understand that at my age. Sit there with the grandkids around me or my two sons or daughters around me and look at their lives and where they're at today in their lives. Just contentment and I'm glad. We've been blessed beyond anything Jan and I have that we should have ever deserved, but we've been blessed. Living a good life brings joy to the Father in heaven. To see that his grace is real within your life. Is it easy? No. You and I struggle with the fleshly nature. We don't always get it right, but we get back up. If we've messed it up, we confess our sins. He's faithful and just to cleanse us, and we get up and we walk. And we, look, we struggle and strive to learn what it is to walk in love. That's what the breastplate of righteousness is. So when you take that hit in the chest, it's just like my, my middle linebacker. He had those shoulder pads on that were protecting him when he took the hit in the chest. So it wasn't as bad as it could have been. He eventually is back up. And I, I put him on the sideline for a little bit and said, you just rest. We'll, we'll, we'll play the game without you. You get over because I knew how hard he had been hit and how tough it is to come back. Third quarter, he came up and said, coach, I'm ready. I want back in the game. Played his best game he ever played after that hit. I was so proud of the kid, how he came back off that. That's what God wants us to do. When you take the hit of the evil day, after you get over the stunning of it and you start fighting your way back, you get up and you live. That's what putting the armor of God is about. Now, you can come to church all the time and not be clothed in righteousness. Eli, the priest of Shiloh, judged Israel 42 years. He had two sons, Hophni, Phinehas. Scripture says they were worthless. Worthless men. I won't go into their sins. Their sins were great, Scripture says. Eli did not rebuke his sons. And there was a battle with the Philistines later. And Samuel had given this warning that it would happen, that both of these young men were killed. Eli, when he hears the news of his son's death, he fell over and he ends up dying. His Daughter-in-law gave birth right after the death of her husband. And they named the baby Ichabod, the glory of God. The glory has departed from Israel. I'm here to remind you that just attending church does not put on the breastplate of righteousness. Hearing the truths of God's word preached does not put on the breastplate of righteousness. You have to be in obedience to what you learn and the truths you hear. And you have to struggle and strive to be able to do that. And then the last one today is simply this. The third piece of equipment is your shoes. Shod means to just put on. It's middle. You have to do this yourself. You're familiar with the two passages. One's in Isaiah 52. The other's in Romans 10. When it says this. How lovely on the mountain are the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation, says to you, Zion, your God reigns. Paul quotes that when he writes the book of Romans. How would they preach unless they're sent? Just written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of great things. 
You and I are to have such a knowledge and understanding of who Christ is and he's to be such a part of our life as we live our lives that when moments come like this, we're the ones who stand and proclaim good news. I've known many great men and women along my years of being in ministry who when life hit them hard, were sitting there giving God the glory, speaking truth of how life really went, even in the midst of their greatest hurt and pain that they may have ever walked through. You and I have to have the gospel of peace ready to go. And what did the gospel do? It brought you at peace with God. You're no longer in enmity with God. You're at peace with God. That's the great gift that God has given you. And so that peace should be real. And as you learn to go through life, you learn some things in such a point that you get that that peace that you now have with God becomes a part of what guards your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. See, I love Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your heart and your mind in Christ. This gospel of our salvation, of God at work within us, it brings us in peace with the Father in heaven. It brings peace within our lives and it begins to be manifested in our relationships with everyone around us. And we become safe people to be around because peace is real. Now, it's a learning process. That doesn't happen overnight. You have to learn how to get there. Paul, when he wrote Philippians 4.13, what does it say? What does it say? Just in your minds. Before I, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What could he do? Back up a couple verses. I have learned the secret of contentment. I have learned if I have a lot, I'm okay. I've learned if I have nothing, I'm okay. If I have plenty to eat, I'm okay. If I have nothing to eat, I'm okay. If I'm free, I'm okay. If I'm a prisoner in the prison, which he was on several occasions, I'm all right. When he reached the point of contentment, that gospel that we close our feet in, that we live as we walk every single day, that peace was so real that he was totally content wherever he was in life. And I want you to know that's a struggle for all of us in this room, including myself. It's amazing how fast we can lose our contentment. A friend of mine in San Antonio critiques my sermons every Sunday, and we have discussions about it all the time. We were discussing this week's, last week's sermon and everything, but one of the things he was talking about was he spilled oatmeal all over the floor, and he was getting ready to do something, and he was reading an article on the economist as he was trying to clean up, and he was seeing how somebody lived like in Cuba, and he went, why am I so upset? We're the most blessed people in the world when it comes to finances. Why am I so frustrated by this particular moment? We got in a long discussion of contentment and a couple texts back and forth to each other. But contentment is real, and it needs to be a part of our life. And if we're not careful, it will disappear on us. But we have been given the gospel of peace. So let's put it on our feet so we can go. We can live. And when the tough times come or the good times come, you're not afraid to say something. You're not afraid to let people know whom you believe. Not what you believe, but whom you believe. Paul's very clear in in Timothy about that. I know whom I have believed. He doesn't say I know what I believe. I know whom whom I believe. And I am convinced, I am deeply persuaded within my heart that he is able to guard that which I've entrusted to him. What has God, what did Paul entrust to God? His whole life. And that relationship was so real that he is not ashamed of who Jesus is. 
when he writes to Rome, to the church there who struggled through imprisonment and, and persecution and death because of their faith and trust in Christ, he said, join with me. I am not ashamed of the gospel. So when tough days come, do not be ashamed to say, when others may say, where's your God? My God's with me. Christ is taking care of me and I'm going to be all right. We might have a more powerful impact on our culture and on our city if you and I could stay at moments like that, how real Jesus really is to us and not just Sunday mornings, that it really is who we are. So Paul goes to Corinth to preach. And when he's there, you want a tough job assignment? I'd have hated to have his job assignment to Corinth. It was dangerous. It had already been dangerous all the way from Philippi to Thessalonica to Berea to Athens. And now he's in Corinth, which is a very immoral city. The fact the name Corinth means to be immoral. It was a sea town. Sailors came and went. There were false gods, false worship all throughout that. And when he preached there, God had to give a vision to him and say this, you're not going to get hurt. It's dangerous going to be, but I need you to stay right where you're at. Paul's already been beaten up a couple times. He got beat with rods in Philippi. He got run out of Thessalonica. He got run out of Berea. He got laughed out of Athens. And now he's facing the dangers again that he'd faced in Asia Minor. And he told the church at Corinth, he wrote him back, I was determined that you would know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. I like that verse. It tells me Paul was just like us. He's not a super saint. He's not a superhero from a movie. He's just a man. But a man who had such a deep passion for who Christ Jesus is that even when the threats came against him, he stood strong. Did it scare him? Yes. I'm glad to know it scared him. I'm glad to know that sometimes he trembled. That's real. Any of us who have to take a public stand will know how real that is. I call it the dark soul of the night when you're debating whether or not you, you keep standing against the culture on what, what you happen to be involved in. And you have to make a determination. Do I believe this is the truth? Do I believe that God will take care of me? Will I stand in the midst of all of that? And will I proclaim it? Will I be able to tell others? And Paul said, when I did my message and my preaching, not in fancy words of wisdom, but in simple demonstration, I have love and I have the spirit at work within me. And here's what it comes down to. We don't want people to hear the gospel because here in the midst of a tragedy or an evil day or a tough time, you and I are trying to learn what it is to stand firm. We're doing a pretty good job. We want to tell people so they go, man, aren't they the most amazing people you've ever encountered? Paul didn't want that pointed back towards him. He said, I've done all of this. I preached. I was scared, but I preached because I didn't want your faith to rest on me. I did not want your faith to rest on the wisdom of men, but I wanted to rest on the power of God because the only way I got through it was by the power of God. And the only way you're going to get through whatever you're doing is through the power of God. So the emphasis here with the shoes is be ready to make known the good news of Christ and what it means in your life. You already have the shoes. Put them on. Now, if you come in my closet, I've got like three pairs of shoes. I wear the same dress shoes every single time. I wear my same tennis shoes every single day, and I wear my football shoes every single day. So I don't have a lot of choices in the morning. Now, on the other side of the closet, it's a different game. My wife has 15 pairs of cowboy boots. She's got into this free birds, and so she's gotten six or seven free birds this, this year alone. That's why I'm working again, is so she can have her free birds. <laughs> she got more tennis shoes than I've owned my entire life. 
And she sits there every morning, what goes with this outfit? Where does this go? She'll kill me if she knew I was saying all this. I just walk in and go, I know what I need. I step into my tennis shoes and I go. I'm telling you, when it comes to Christianity, you're going to be more like me than her. You don't have a lot of choices. You have one simple choice. Am I going to trust Jesus to take care of me today? Am I going to hold on to who Christ is through this day, good or bad? I'm going to walk with him. And if anybody wants to know why I do halfway decent in life, I'm going to tell them. It's God's grace in Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I have been blessed. That will have an impact and influence. But I want to say this, and I wrap down. No one starts at the finish line. It'd be nice if some of our races, we could start at the finish line and it'd be over just like that. One of my grandsons ran the 400 and the 800. He hated it with a passion. Uh, because 800 yards or 800 meters running is full blast twice around the track. He would like to have started at the finish line. We all start at the starting line. And off and on through the race, it's tough. And sometimes we get tired. But we dig down deep and we fight through it all. But let me give you another reason why I think we need to take all this seriously. Something hit me this week when I was just kind of thinking through this. Sitting there watching my kids and grandkids at the house the other day. You know, it dawned on me. I want them to do better than I did. I've done well. My dad did good. My dad and mom said a great lesson for my brothers and I. My kids have turned out good. My grandkids are doing well in high school and junior high. But what I want to do, I want to finish well. What best way can I do that? But put in on the armor of God, walk through life, be obedient to my Lord, live a good life, be the best I can be by the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Not mess up so they become ashamed of who Pop-Pop is. And they do like my brothers and I did on Facebook this week. We wrote... He wrote, I didn't know he had written it. I wrote something very similar. We were blessed. We lost dad two years ago. We had a great father who started well, fought it through, and finished well. And he said, and I said, I, I just want to finish like my dad did. I want to do it in such a way that Father in heaven looks down and Steve says, good job, young man. But I want to do it another way too. I want my kids and grandkids so when that day comes, I breathe my last. And they stand there at the funeral home and said, Dad was a good man. He did well. His faith was real. And how do we do all that? You put on the armor of God. You hold on the truth of who Jesus is. You walk in a manner that is pleasing to him. And you know what the gospel is all about. Now, next week, we're going to add a couple more to this. And that will help us to put it all together in a package. But literally all the armor of God is, is explaining everything that was written before the armor of God in a picture. So you reflect and think on that. And may God bless you in a very special way on this Father's Day. Father, we thank you for the time together today and for the privilege and honor you've given us to study your word. And Lord, you've helped us to see these are gifts you've given us. You've given us the ability to gird our loins with truth. We can do that. 
It's not some mystical thing out there. It is wrapping ourselves in the simple truths of what your word says and what life's about and walking in that. The breastplate of righteousness that will protect our heart through all the difficulties in life. And even when we take hits, it helps us to get through it. It's just walking in a manner that is pleasing to you. And may we always hold on to the simple truths that we are not ashamed of who Jesus is. That the greatest gift we've ever been given in life was the gift of life through Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of our sins, the adoption into your family, the inheritance that awaits us, all made possible because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have life everlasting. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.